thank you. The North American Baptist Foundation does great work on behalf of the denominations, churches, and the kingdom of God, so we're glad to have great leaders in, in great positions. Um, let's see, a couple of things. Oh, there we go. Look at that. Don't even need to pray for technology. Um, oh, I, no, I needed, needed to grab scripture. I've been, um, I've been walking around down here in front. It just dawned on me as I was watching Ken and others up here. Is it easier for you if I'm up here, or is it, or is it okay if I'm down there? Do you have any preference? You don't know. Okay. Well, then, heck with that. We'll, we'll just do whatever, whatever feels good. I just, I feel like up here I'm presenting and down there we're just sort of having a conversation, so I may end up back down there again. In your handout, in your booklet, you will see that following the session we just finished on developing the heart of a sower, it's followed by a section called the seven deadly sins of Christian fundraising. Um, we are not, I am not going to present on that. You have got lots of good information there. Um, if, if, if we were predominantly practitioners in the development field, I would go back through that as well, but I think there's a better way for us to use our collective time. But what you'll see in there, just to give you a quickie little background, is that um, it is it's my way of articulating what I believe are the biggest challenges facing people who do the practice of, of, of raising kingdom resources. And the seven, quote-unquote, seven deadly sins are very different than what most people would think about going into it. It really has nothing to do with whether or not your receipt letters get out within three days of receiving the gift, um, the kind of follow-up you do, the kind of ways in which you do your direct mail. There's nothing in there about the enterprise and the work of actually doing fundraising. But it's built on this theology that we've been talking about. And so it's things like, are, are you prepared for this work? Have you, are you spiritually prepared to go in and do this work? Are you willing to give it the time that it takes? Do you understand that this is more about ministry than about money? Are you willing to go to prayer on everything and really seek discernment in the direction that you're going? Um, and who gets the glory in the end? You know, one of the biggest challenges we have, in, as, real quickly, as fundraisers in this whole enterprise is that we can buy the whole theology and we can even go see our, our, our partners and we can invite them and we can let them have a blessing and we can be very true to, to, to being one kingdom people. And then after we receive the gift, we send them a thank you. And what does the thank you say? Oh, we so thank you. You are such a generous person. Thank you for giving your gift to our ministry. Thank you for, and, and we, just, we just completely reinforce a whole two kingdom mindset. So we have to be careful all the way through everything that we do. Are we being consistent in helping people understand? Um, there are wonderful ways to thank people in a one kingdom way of doing it. You know, we're, we're, we're so pleased that you've been blessed by being a faithful steward of what God has given to you, that you had invested in this ministry as he led you. And we rejoice with you and give God the glory. It's a very different way of saying it, isn't it? So there's just a lot in there about what that all might look like. Um, I think we can spend our time a little bit better in some different ways, but you have all the notes and if you want to go back and refer to those, fine. If you have questions at the end, um, you can do one of two things. You can either email me, and I'll be happy to answer them. Or, in a brash moment of self-promotion, you can buy my book. Because <laughs> there's a book called The Seven Deadly Sins of Christian Fundraising, and it's all in there. So whatever you want to do on that. Um, what I'd like to do, oh, and by the way, I just want to acknowledge, isn't the, the praise and worship band doing a great job leading us in worship? Let's give them a hand, can we? 
means so much to have our hearts attuned in the right way before we move ahead. Okay, so we are going to go back now, and these, these last three sessions, we're going to pick up these five keys that we have left, five through, or three through seven. Never was very good at math. Um, so we've done the first two, and now we're going to talk about this third key. And let me go back and reframe this structure for you so you remember what we're doing. But this third key is the key from doing to being, and it's unlocking the shackles of the drive to produce. You interested? So here's the framework that we've been working with. We have the faithful steward in the middle, and we understand that, that being a faithful steward is comprised of these four relational areas, our relationship with God, with ourself, with our neighbor, and with creation. And this really forms the core of these next four keys. We're going to go through each of these one at a time, two this morning and two uh, this afternoon. So we're going to start in the upper left-hand corner here with the steward leader in the presence of God. Now, as I developed these different spheres, um, the way that I decided to unpack this was to say that there's really three components to each one of these. The first is that God gives us a gift, a very special gift with which we can live out this area of relationship as a faithful steward. And of course, because God gives us a gift, the enemy also responds with a temptation to, to steal it from us. So I want to talk about the gift, I want to talk about the temptation, and then the third are some disciplines that we can use that can help us be a faithful steward in each of these four areas. So each of four will have all three of those components. A gift, a temptation, and disciplines. So let's talk about this first level and the gift. The gift at this first level of relationship with God is the gift of intimacy. And that's a really powerful word, isn't it, when we think about intimacy. Um, so what does that look like? Well, Scripture tells us that we can draw with confidence before the throne of grace. The God of the universe, the almighty, sovereign creator of the universe says, just come on down. And come up here with confidence because this throne is all for you. It's a throne of grace. You know, the curtain's been split. All the great theology that we know what happened when Jesus Christ died for our sins. God invites us into a relationship with him that is meant to be the most intimate relationship we have in our existence. Isn't that amazing? If you're married, you know what it means to have an intimate relationship with your spouse. That incredible closeness and God says, I created that for you because I love you and I want you to have that relationship. But you know what? Your relationship with me is supposed to be even more intimate. I want that to even be closer. And so he gives us this amazing gift. It's about meditating on God's word. We enter into this gift when we worship in prayer, in devotion, fasting. I just listed a number of things up here. We use confession, contrition, celebration, simplicity, solitude, submission, service. All of our Christian life, our discipleship life is all about intimacy with God, isn't it? It's a rich, rich gift that he gives us. Well, how do we develop a heart that desires that intimacy with God? Uh, Oswald Chambers just shook me to the core with this quote. It comes out of enjoying intimacy with God. He says this, both scripture and experience teach us that it is we, not God, who determine the degree of intimacy with him that we enjoy. Are you ready for this? 
We are at this moment as close to God as we really choose to be. Wow. That kind of hits some of you between the eyes. I think the point Oswald Chambers is making is that if you, today, as you sit here right now at this moment, if you don't feel very close to God, who moved? Right? Who moved? He hasn't gone anywhere. God doesn't go and hide. God doesn't pull away from us. He's always as close as our breath. And so if we're not experiencing intimacy with God, something in our life has moved us away. And we have to take responsibility for that and say, okay, how do I regain that sense of absolute intimacy with God? And then this is from uh, Stephen Korch, a, a wonderful book called My Soul Thirsts. And he says, when we fail to develop genuine intimacy with God, we commit ourselves to an unauthentic spiritual life. We may still go through the motions of a Christian life, but we end up dishonest with God and impersonating life. Wow. Powerful words. When we fail to develop genuine intimacy with God. And you notice again, he talks about who develops that? When we fail to develop intimacy with God. It's not all on us, but we are as close to God right now as we really choose to be. And if you believe that, it's a pretty good check and balance, isn't it, in our spirit? From the gift of intimacy, we get there through the power of surrender. And I've, I found a fascinating book by this lady called Alicia Britt Choate. I think that's how you say her name. And she talked about leadership. And she was said, she's posited that there are three kinds of leadership. The first kind of leadership is possession-based leadership. I get to be the leader because I own the thing, right? I own the business. I get to be the leader. I own the land. I get to be the leader. Um, in nonprofit world, it doesn't quite work that way. But in a lot of other areas, the, you lead because you have possession of something. The other, second kind of leadership, of course, is position-based leadership. I'm the leader because the board elected me to be the leader, because the people elected me to be the representative, or whatever the case may be. But I'm in this position, um, and because of my position and title, I am the leader. And then she posits a third kind of leadership, which she says is what really Jesus came to help us to see. And it's a pretty powerful statement. It's called submission-based leadership. And it is leadership based on the fact that I have become so submitted in my relationship with God that God has anointed me to a place of leadership in the kingdom. And I lead out of the strength of my surrender. We don't hear a lot about that. We know we probably want that in a pastor or a, or a spiritual leader. But to actually talk about submission or surrender-based leadership as the basis of our leadership is a pretty powerful thing, don't you think? I appreciate her words on that. So it is in our being that we find intimacy with God. And this is the point that, I, that we kind of want to make in this whole first section. It is, in, it is in who we are, first and foremost, that we find intimacy with God. Um, out of this, I draw from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this great book, The Cost of Discipleship. Have, have some of you read it? Some of you? If you've not read The Cost of Discipleship, it, it's just go, it's a little small book that Bonhoeffer wrote one of the most powerful books on discipleship. It's fabulous. And um, he, this is one of the great quotes out of it, which simply says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come 
and die. I don't hear this a lot at altar calls. Come to Jesus today and die. <laughs> it's not the kind of thing that gets people out of the seats of Billy Graham crusades and has them run down the aisle and get down there. I can hardly wait to die. But what Bonhoeffer is getting at is that the first step in the authentic Christian life, the first step with intimacy with God, has got to include an absolute death to everything that would keep us from that kind of intimacy. Right? It's back a little bit to Luther's dying and rising. For us to rise again to Christ, we need, there's, there needs to be a death that happens. It's a very interesting thing that the Christian life really does begin with death. And I believe that. So, the question we ask of a Christian leader, if you really want to find out where a Christian leader is, I don't believe the question we should be asking is, are you leading effectively? I think the first question we should be asking every Christian leader is simply this. Have you died? Have you died? Have you died to your need to own and control? Wow. If we are really going to lead and have intimacy with God, we have got to die to our need to own everything and to control. Have you ever worked for a boss who had to have control of everything? Everybody say, yeah. I think we all probably have, haven't we? Okay. Um, do, you, do you die to your need to be right? Do you always have to be the one that's right? Do you always have to be the one who has the best idea? Oops, I'm sorry. I come back here. That was my fault. Do, I, do we die to our need to be liked and affirmed? Isn't that a, that's a malady right now in Christian leadership, I believe, across the world, but especially in North America. i tell you a real quick side story. Um, we went through a very painful separation from a church that we'd been at for a long time and loved for a number of different reasons that we just couldn't reconcile. And in my last meeting with our pastor, you know, this heartfelt, kind of tearful meeting with our, with our pastor, um, I challenged him on why he had chosen to go a certain path and preach a certain way and, and lift up a certain um, theology, if you will, within the church. And he finally came down to me, and he looked at me, and he said, Scott, um, I just want to be liked. And I, I thought to myself, my spirit had just said, man, you are done. You're, as, a gospel, as, a, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this culture, the effectiveness of your witness, you're done. We can't lead from the position of wanting to be liked and affirmed. And I'm going to tell a quick little story on, on my predecessor, uh, Eric's boss before I had the opportunity to work with Eric, because it's a wonderful illustration. Monford Brauch, one of the greatest men of God I've ever known. Um, and he tells the story, and, and he'd be more than, I'm sure, happy with me to tell it, but he was in a situation at the seminary where he knew in his spirit that he needed to let somebody go. It was somebody who'd been there a long time. She was sort of a sacred cow in the organization. No aversions attended, but you know what I mean, right? <laughs> had been there forever. Everybody loved her, but she had gotten to the point where not only her position, but the way in which she was understanding her role and the way she was operating, it just, she, she really needed to leave the organization. And he knew it, but he kept putting it off, and he kept putting it off. And when he would say, his, his, Monfred's excuse was, if I let this person go, it's going to disrupt the whole community. 
There's going to be a lack of unity, and we want to be unified right here in the organization. And if I let this person go, it's going to derail us for like two or three months working through all of this. And I really want to save the organization from all this angst. And so he kept putting it off and putting it off. And he, he told me this story. He said, so one day a board member comes in and sits and talks to him. And he said, Monford, why haven't you let this person go? Because he had kind of told the board to get ready for this. This might happen. And so he went down this litany. Oh, I don't, you know, I'm going to do it because it's going to disrupt the organization. There's going to be lack of unity. It's going to derail us, all of that. And the board member looked him in the eyes and he goes, that's not why you're not letting her go. He said, this is an issue of pride. And Monfort said, pride? What do you mean? And he goes, you don't want people not to like you. And Monfort tells a story that he got in his car and drove home, and by the time he hit the second stoplight, he knew exactly what he needed to do. And he turned around and came back and called her into his office and let her go. He realized that his own personal desire to be liked in the organization was blocking him from doing what needed to be done on behalf of the organization. When we need to be liked, it's almost impossible for us to lead effectively, isn't it? We need to die to that. Have you died to our need to be needed? And we died to our need to be measured by what we accomplish rather than by who we are. Um, how do we measure our success in an organization as a leader? By what we get done or by the person that we are and the character that we have within the organization? There's a lot of things. This could be a very long list, couldn't it? But what are the things we need to die to in order that God might really be the one who lives in and through us? Intimacy with God. Okay, I've got to tell you a, a story. That probably won't surprise you. Um, so we're talking about being and doing. And I don't know about you, but I'm a, I'm a pretty big doer. I have to-do lists. I have a, 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 a one-year set of goals that dictate down into monthly goals that I then put into weekly goals that I then put into my daily to-do list. Okay? You get the, get the point? Um, and I love crossing things off my to-do list. I get energy from getting stuff done, right? And whether it's writing or speaking or consulting or whatever else I'm doing, checking things off lists, getting things done, going to bed at night, being exhausted and say, oh, I got so much done. Always felt really good. I'm, I'm, a, real, I'm a real doer. Um, and I've always wondered what motivates that. What motivated me to be such to be such a doer, especially in this whole area of, of intimacy with God. And so here's a, here's a confession. Uh, in Matthew, Jesus tells a story of a man who goes on a trip and calls in three of his assistants and gives them each bags of gold. Remember that? Sometimes it's talents, sometimes it's bags of gold. Gives one ten, one five, one one, or one three bags, two bags, one bags, whichever version you see in Luke or Matthew. And he goes away, and the story says that one of them invested it, got ten more, and the other one invested it, got five more, and the third one buried it, right, in the ground. Master comes back. They all come in and give it accounting. First one, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's good pleasure. You have done what I wanted you to do. The second one, same thing. The third one comes in, buried the bag of gold, buried the talent, came in and said, this is all I have left. I buried it. I was scared to death because you're a tough guy. And, of course, he says, depart from me into everlasting punishment. Now, all my life I've read that text through the eyes of a producer. Okay? 
I've read that through the eyes of someone who loves to get things done and produce. So what that story told me is that I don't want to be that third guy, right? I don't want to be that third guy. I want to be the first two guys, which means I've got to spend my life 150 miles an hour doing everything I possibly can with what God gave me to make sure that I can come breathlessly before him at the last day and say, I think I did it. I think I invested it all. I think I, I think I got a return. And here's my confession to you. For my entire adult life, I have never once had peace in my soul that when I stood before Jesus on the last day, he would say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. I carried with me what I thought I would hear Jesus say. And I still struggle with it today. And it goes like this. The final day comes and I'm standing before Jesus and he says, what did you do with your talents? And I turn around and I, I back a semi-truck up, right? And I open it up and it's got crates of fruit, all the fruit I produce. And I start stacking it up and say, oh, I wrote these books and I, I spoke to these people and I did this consulting and I did this and I did this. And we just start taking out all the fruits of my life and I stack up all this fruit that I did. And when I'm finally done, I stand before Jesus and I say, okay, you know, you gave me some talents, you went away, you came back. Here's, here's what I've done with all that you've given me. And he looks at me, looks at the fruit, and he says, well, I guess you did your best. Probably all we could have asked for. See, the problem with being a driven person is you can never do enough. You can never do enough. No matter what I accomplished, it never gave me the peace of heart that I could finally do enough that Jesus would say, oh, you did it. That's everything I wanted you to do. You're done. That's wonderful. It's great. Well done. Good and faithful servant. There was always more that I could have done or should do or needed to do. And so I lived with this angst in my spirit. What does it mean to have Jesus say to us, well done, good and faithful servant? And it was in that angst that I was reading through Scripture and again, in my very heavy producer mindset, came across John chapter 15. And we all know John 15. I won't make you recite it out loud, but you all know John 15. I'm just going to read the first part of it. Now, put on your glasses as a producer and listen to these verses. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it can be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the words I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. And here comes the big verse. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you don't remain in me, you're like a branch thrown away that withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I thought I had hit the mother load. I had, this is it. This is a fruit producer's dream. 
Jesus is coming and saying, you want to produce more fruit? You want to stand before me on the last day and have all the fruit you need? Here's the formula. I said, hallelujah. But I didn't understand the recipe. You see, it doesn't make any sense. How does remaining in Jesus help me produce more? It's not like I had extra time on my hands to just hang around with Jesus. So where's the equation that says, if you want to be more fruitful, if you want to be more productive, if you want to get more stuff done in your life, just spend more time in quiet community in the presence of Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, when am I going to do that? From like 2 to 4 a.m.? You know, when do we do this? And so I was struggling with this. I thought, I'm, there's something in here I don't get. I want to produce more, but I can't do it if God is calling me to remain and more in him. Those two things didn't equate to me. And so I'm struggling with this, and one day I'm driving to see a client in Helena, Montana, and I'm driving across Interstate 90 through, through, or, uh, through Idaho between... Uh, Fourth of July Pass and Lookout Pass. Beautiful, long, straight section, kind of up in the mountains. Um, 75 mile an hour speed zone, which is really cool. Um, and so I'm in my truck at 6 o'clock in the morning. I'm doing 78, 79, you know how we all do that, right? Um, got my cruise control on, beautiful sunrise. And I'm, I'm zooming down. I know the road so well that I'm not really paying any attention. And I'm flying down the freeway, and I'm just chewing on this. I'm saying, Lord, how does remaining in you help me produce more? I don't get it. I want to produce more fruit. I want to be more fruitful. Can you show me? And as I'm chewing on this and thinking on this and flying down the freeway, and I can only tell you just honestly how this happened because it, it was as close in my life as I have ever come to actually hearing the voice of God. It was so clear in my mind, and it was, it was nothing I would have expected to hear that I can only believe that finally the Holy Spirit just shouted it in my ear. This is what he said. He said, Scott, that's not the fruit. And I, st and I said, well, wait a minute, what, what, do you, what do you mean? What do you mean that's not the fruit? And before I could try to struggle with what those words meant, Galatians 5 just poured into my spirit. And he said, the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. I pulled over to the side of the road and I, I, I began crying. I just began sobbing. And I said, do you mean to tell me my entire adult Christian life, I have been in a frantic, all-out pursuit of the wrong fruit? And he said, yeah, pretty much. Got to my hotel room, opened up scripture, and I went back to John 15. And you know what? There's not a word in here about producing fruit. Not a word. I read it that way. That's not what it says. The word that, John, that Jesus used in John 15 is bearing fruit. And there is a world of difference between producing and bearing. You see, in the end, if you go talk to an orchardist, 
and you, ask, and you ask, how much fruit does that branch produce? You know what they'll say to you? Not a thing. Branches don't produce fruit. What produces fruit? Sap produces fruit. Sun produces fruit. All a branch does is just hangs out there, right? And when the sap comes and flows through it, and it makes itself available to the sun, fruit comes out on all of its branches. But if you cut it off from the, from the, uh, from the trunk, what happens? It dies. If branches produced fruit, we could cut them off and hang and lay them around on the ground, and fruit would come out all over the place. But it doesn't. This whole thing is about bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And what God did in my heart that day is he said to me, Scott, what I want from your life, and this changed everything for me, what I want in your life is every day when you wake up, I want you to know that the most important thing that you can do this day above everything else is to be so engrafted into me that the Holy Spirit will work through you and the, my fruit will just spring out in your life for all the world to see. And you don't have to do anything but remain in me. Now that is a very different picture, isn't it? Than somebody bent on having to produce enough fruit to finally hear the words of Jesus. Well, then I had to go back to my verse in Matthew. What about these talents? What about these guys that went away and came back? And you know what jumped out at me automatically? What are the, what's, what are the two words that the master says to the, to the servants? How does he commend them? Well done, good and faithful servants. The fruit of the Spirit is goodness and faithfulness. You see, I think what Jesus is saying in that, in that verse in Matthew is that I want to so live in you that when I return, you're going to come back and I'm going to look at your life and I'm going to see how the Holy Spirit worked through you and without you going out and working yourself to death, my spirit is going to be made manifest in everything that you do and you're going to touch people around you with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And I, as a fruit producer, was set free. I was set free. I have a little more confidence that I'm going to hear the right words from Jesus at the end. But it's not going to have anything to do with what I did. But it's going to have everything to do with what he did through me. Amen? Intimacy with God. Being engrafted into the vine is the single most important thing we will do, I believe, in the entirety of our life on this earth. I really believe that. I think that's what Jesus wants passionately from you and me more than anything else in the world, is for us to remain in him and be engrafted. So, when it comes to leadership, that becomes a challenge. The temptation from this first gift, if the gift is intimacy... The temptation the enemy comes along with is stagnancy. Because frankly, the enemy wants us to do anything except be engrafted into Christ. Anything the enemy can do to keep us from having an intimate relationship with Christ, he's going to be about doing. Stagnancy is a symptom of our doing, not our lack of doing. We hear that? Stagnancy in our life with Christ is oftentimes a symptom of the fact that we're out doing and doing and doing and driven and driven and producing and producing and producing and all of a sudden we look around and we've accomplished a lot and our spirits are dried up. 
And my friends, I talk to Christian leaders all the time whose spirits are dried up because they have lost the opportunity to have intimacy with God. When you ask them why, what's the number one reason they say? I don't have time. I don't have time. Look at my agenda. Look at my schedule. Look what the board is asking me to do. Look what my people are expecting me to do. I'm on the road all the time. I'm here all the time doing all this kind of stuff. And we say, why are you doing all of that? Well, we've got to do the work of the kingdom. Well, the work of the kingdom is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So the enemy has got us thinking about this drivenness producing kind of lifestyle to such an extent that our spirits dry up and we lose our sense of intimacy with God. The more we do, the more we can fail to be. And I love this one from Doug Webster's The Discipline of Surrender. Taking initiative is not the starting point for spiritual growth. Let me say that again. Taking initiative is not the starting point for spiritual growth. Instead, a quest for success, oh, instead of a quest for success, there needs to be a rest for the soul from which life's meaning, purpose, and significance issue. Is there any greater picture of rest for the soul than the sleeping little boy? I just love that picture. Do you get what, what Doug, Douglas Webster's trying to say to us here? We've got to find ways in our lives Find time in our lives. We have to be a priority in our lives that our thirst for intimacy and quiet communion with God dominates everything else. It is the unquestionable component of our day with which nothing else will compete. Intimacy with God. Well, how do we do that? Well, just a couple disciplines here. We need to have this idea of a thirst for intimacy. I think as leaders, as Christians, we need to wake up every day and the one thing that will satisfy our soul more than anything else is the time that we have intimate with God. Now that might be a quiet time, but frankly, it needs to be throughout the day, doesn't it? And that intimacy with God needs to be known in every part of the day. I was sharing with the guys yesterday a great story of a, of a leader who said to me, you know, Scott, here's what my day looks like. I get up in the morning, and I have a devotional time, and I feel really close to God. And I go get in my car, and I put on Christian music, and we talk all the way to work. And by the time I get to work, I have such great intimacy with God. And then I get out of the car and close the door and leave him behind. And I go into my work, and I do all my work, and there's stress, and there's, there's, there, there's all this, 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 um, this challenge and all this drivenness. And by the time I get done, by the end of the day, I'm frazzled, and I'm burned out, and I'm frustrated. And I walk back out and get in my car, and I turn on my Christian music, and I start talking to God again. He said, how do you get God from the parking lot into my, into my office? And I think that can be true for a lot of us. You know, we have our quiet time in the morning where we have our... our, our um, uh, we do our Bible study and our devotions, and we have this sense of intimacy with God. And then we say, okay, I'll see you tonight. We take off and we go to work. So it's, it's cultivating a, an ability and a mindset to think and have that intimacy with God all day long. Wouldn't you love to have that? Just that sense that, that God is as close to you as your breath every minute, every day, right there, and never lose it. The cool thing that, it's, that he is, it's just we that have to have our eyes open and to see that. All right, one more story here, and then we'll get done with this first one. Um, and so I want to ask this question, especially, well, it doesn't matter if you're a leader or not, no matter where you are in your journey, because we've talked about journey, I want to talk about this idea of a next deeper step. And yes, I apologize, that is my leg. Um, so, so here's a, a quick little story. What am I doing? Good. Um, 
took my family on a vacation down to Belize. Uh, my, my daughter-in-law's parents run a Christian retreat center in Belize. By the way, if you ever want to go to a really cool place, it's, really, it's in the center of the country. You've got beaches and you've got rainforest and you've got Mayan ruins and all kinds of great ministry going on there. So we decided to go down there and spend about a week or ten days with them. And we went to the beach and we're sitting on the beach and, and I noticed this scene kind of taking place in front of me. And one of the one of the real pitfalls of kind of being a theologian is you sort of, you, you think theologically about everything. And why do we have to sit on a beach and do that? I don't know. It, it's a real curse. But I did. And so here's what I saw. Here's what I saw. I saw little kids about four or five years old that were running around and splashing and playing in the, in the waves. And you've seen them do it. You know what they do? They run out, and then as soon as the wave comes, they turn, and they scream, and they yell, and they come running back up the beach. And you know, they kind of get their, their, their feet wet, and that's about all they do, right? You have kids that do that? You with me? Okay. The second, as I saw a group of kids who were probably young teenagers, and they were out about waist deep. And they were jumping up in the waves, and they were kind of catching the waves, but they always kept their feet on the ground. They never got over their heads. And then beyond them, some guys were surfing, right? Like college guys. And they were out there on their surfboards, and they were out in the bigger waves, and they were zooming around and having a great amount of time out there on the waves. A little bit beyond them was a set of snorkelers. Now, these people were you know, putting masks on and snorkels on, putting their face in the water, and just like a whole aquarium was opening up underneath them. They were seeing things those guys on the surface never had a chance to see. It was incredible snorkeling down there. And as I watched the snorkelers, a boat left the dock, and it was filled with a set of scuba divers. And they were taking the tanks out to a very famous place called the Blue Hole, one of the most famous diving places in the world. And they would go out there, and they were putting their tanks on. They were going down, what, 30, 40, 50, 60 feet. And they, they saw stuff nobody could even imagine. And on that boat, by the way, there were a couple people there that would put on the, the, the tanks that had kind of the nitrogen-oxygen mix, and they would go down 100, 120, sometimes 150 feet into the blue hole. And they would see things that very few people on the face of the earth would ever see. And sitting there thinking about this scene and relating it to our Christian life in terms of our intimacy and our walk with Jesus. Because I pictured that no matter where we are right now in our life, Jesus is always standing out a little further and saying, come on out. You, you think you're enjoying where you are? I got more for you to see. You like and splashing around in the waves? Oh, wait till you get out here on a surfboard. It's glorious out here. You ready to come? You love the surfing? I got a snorkel mask for you. I'm going to take you to places you can't and show you things you can't even imagine. And about the time we get really comfortable as a snorkeler, he goes, no, 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 you're not done here. Come on out. I got deeper things to show you. I got more amazing things to reveal to you. But you see, every step requires us to give up control, to go where we're kind of scared to go, and to trust him. Isn't that right? Because it's always deeper. And there's waves and currents and sharks out there. And so it takes faith and trust to go where Jesus calls us to go. And if you are a leader in the kingdom of God and you are spiritually splashing around in the little waves around your ankles... You have some work to do. 
We can only help lead people into deeper water if we are always watching and listening and yielding to the call of God to go deeper with him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that each of you has a next step in your Christian life that's going to take you a little deeper, make you trust a little bit more, have a little bit more faith, give up a little bit more control, step out in an area that you're kind of scared to step out in? That's where you're supposed to be. Oh, and by the way, let me ask you a question. If Jesus calls you into deeper water where there's sharks and where it's a lot of currents and all the rest of the unknown out there, if he calls you out there, can you be, can you be guaranteed that it's always safe? No. No. He doesn't promise us a safe life, does he? Can you, can you always expect that it's going to be an easy? No, it's not going to be easy. It's not meant to be easy, and it's not always meant to be safe. And the best way I can explain that is from that wonderful little episode in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Lucy is talking to Mr. Beaver in the beaver den. And Mr. Beaver is talking to her about Aslan, the great lion. And as he describes Aslan as this huge, ferocious lion with his roar that can be heard across the kingdom, Lucy's legs begin to shake. And because and, he says, you're going to stand before Aslan. And she gets all panicked and she goes, well, 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 is he safe? And you remember what Mr. Beaver says? He says, safe? Safe? No, he's not safe. But he is good. He's the king, you know. The one who calls you today to deeper waters is good. And he's the king. And we need to go to him. What for you is the next deeper step? And then I'm going to end with just this quick word on these trajectories. Um, for those of us that are in leadership, my goal in this process was to suggest what this might look like for a leader. If we take into our leadership a passion for intimacy with God, how do we lead our people? What does that mean for the way in which I lead my team and everyone else? I'm actually going to just jump over these. They're in your notes because I just want to get to this last bit here. So here's a couple of, tra of trajectories that I would talk about. First of all, steward leaders are united with the people they serve in a dis journey of faith and discovery. One of the things I believe this does is it helps me as a leader look at everybody around me in my organization and realize God is calling them to their next deeper step. They're all struggling with their intimacy with God. How do I as a leader help them in that journey? Because we're on it together. I believe if more leaders in the kingdom of God would be passionate and concerned about the spiritual journeys of the people that serve their organizations, that we could help create a culture of that fellow journeying together and help everybody move closer to God and have deeper intimacy. Um, how do we encourage others to be stewards of their relationship with God? The effectiveness of your ministry to your people will depend upon being passionate about their journey, being used by God in that journey, deeply desiring that they be set free and being committed to help them take their next deeper step. I would love to see these as job, part of a job description of, of a leader, wouldn't you? Going to hire the next president of our, of our university. We want, a, we want a university president that's passionate about the journey of the people used by God, setting people free, and committed to help them take their next deeper step. I think that'd be a pretty cool part of a job description, that we would have a leader that would be passionate about this. And steward leaders cultivate culture. One of the things we know as a leader is it's our job to help cultivate and maintain the culture of our organization. And we do that 
by the way in which we un help understand this idea of intimacy. So my question for you as a leader is, are you modeling a lifestyle that will help cultivate a, a culture of generosity? It's what we talked about in there yesterday. Um, are we as leaders modeling what it looks like to be generous? Do, do, are we modeling what it looks like to prioritize, and listen to this, to prioritize intimacy with God above everything else? And I'm going to talk about this here in a minute, but I think one of the most convicting things that, um, that I have seen for Christian leaders is we are modeling a lifestyle as a leader that does not demonstrate that intimacy with God is our highest priority. When we as leaders are running around and we're burned out and we're, we're taking on more than we should and we're working on the weekends, and one of the things I challenge people is, you know, if, if you as a Christian leader are sending emails to your people on Sunday, what are you modeling about the Sabbath, about a day of rest? Um, about intimacy with God as your highest priority, about using the Sabbath as the first day of the week and all the other things that are out there. How do we model to the people around us that we believe intimacy with God is the greatest priority we can have in our lives as leaders and as individuals? Are you open in sharing about your own journey and are you modeling a life of the godly steward that's been set free? So it really does flow out of the leader for us to be able to do that. So there's a couple of trajectories. The bottom line in this third key from being to doing is our greatest work is to abide in Christ. It is the freedom to measure success in kingdom terms. Your greatest work is to abide in Christ. Everything flows from that. Okay? Deep breath. We all, we're all still with it? Need to sit up straight, stretch your arms? Okay? We got... All the, we have one key that stands between us and lunch. So let's take a deep breath and let's see if we can't get through it. I promise you the next one's not as long as the first one. Um, I'm just so, I'm so passionate about this idea of intimacy with God because it really does. Do, it, do you struggle with that? This sense of, of, of daily consistent intimacy with God, is that, is that a common challenge that we have together? So we're hitting, we're hitting something that we can relate to. All right, let's, maybe it's a good challenge and a good opportunity for us to think about what that might look like. All right, then number four. Yeah, okay. The fourth key is from distraction to focus. It's unlocking the shackles of a misplaced identity. So let's go back to our map again. We just talked about the one in the upper left-hand corner, the steward leader in the presence of God. Now we're going to talk about the steward leader in the mirror. This is the way in which we as leaders and as stewards can, can steward our relationship with ourself. And this might be the hardest one to get our hands around, but oh, it is so critical. And so again, we have a gift, a temptation, and a discipline. The gift, I believe, that God gives to us in this secondary relationship is the gift um, of certainty. The gift of certainty, and here's what I mean by that. There are some things of which we can be certain, and we, going back to last night because of God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ, we can be certain in who our God is in Jesus Christ, certain in who we are as image bearers of that God, certain of our vocation as citizens of the kingdom of God, and certain of our future as heirs of salvation. Is everybody in here certain of those four things? Can you just say with your whole heart, I am absolutely certain of those four things? I hope you can. If you can't, it really is a good time to talk to somebody afterwards. 
and see why you may not be able to, to hold those things. Because this is the core from which we operate, isn't it, as Christians? This is the foundation we stand on in a world where everything's shifting around. We have certainty in a world where there's nothing certain out there. It's pretty cool. To me, this is a great piece of evangelism, is giving people an opportunity to stand for a minute on something that's so firm and so certain when all the world around them is relative and shifting. We're certain about these things. Well, there's a balance in Scripture. I, I happen to believe that most of the great scriptural truths come to us in attention. You know, the Scripture kind of gives us two different sides, and we have to hold them in tension. So think about what Scripture says about who we are. Okay? On the one side, we have these great verses, which we all love to quote. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Isn't that neat? Fearfully and wonderfully made. We are redeemed children of God. We are heirs of salvation. We are the sons and daughters of Christ. Jesus says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. All these wonderful things that, that tell us who we are and kind of get us going, wow, it's so great. This is wonderful. Then you turn the page. And it says we're jars of clay. It says that even though we're redeemed, we have to pray. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, oh God, lead us not into temptation. And also from John 15, that apart from Christ, we can't do anything. So which is it? Are we fearfully and wonderfully made, or are we jars of clay? Is it greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, or apart from Christ, we can't do a thing? Which is it? The answer is, yeah, it's both. You see, I think Scripture gives us these, these contrasts to keep us in a really good centered position so that we don't get distracted in one way or the other. And it's up to us to maintain a balance of who we understand ourselves to be. And oh, my friends, the enemy hates it. The enemy will do anything to get you away from understanding who you are in Jesus Christ. I believe it's one of his greatest attempts and attacks in our lives. And where I see it coming is this idea of distraction. So let me see real quickly if I can give you an idea what this looks like. Pretend that we're looking at this road, um, and it's a nice wide road, and it's got a center stripe, and we're right on the center stripe, and we're looking right down the middle, and at the end of that road is, is, is Christ himself. And all he says is, walk through this world with your eyes on me, right? Keep your eyes on me. Remember the story of Peter, right? Gets out of the boat. We all know the story real well. Kept his eyes on Jesus. What did he do? He just walked on water. He looked at the wind and waves around him, sank like a rock. That's why Jesus called him the rock. No, it really isn't, but get to be the point. Sank like a rock. So the whole point here is that, is that for us to have the self-image that God wants us to have and to maintain it, we need to keep our eyes totally, completely focused on him as the source, the one and only source of understanding who we are. We are a child of the living God. Amen? And that defines everything we do. Well, the enemy comes along and starts whispering in our ear. And the enemy is, I believe, is just as happy. It doesn't matter which direction you are off that path, as long as you're off the path. He does not want you in the center of the road. He does not want your eyes on Christ. And he does not want us deriving our self-image from who we are in Jesus Christ. So, he has a couple of tools. On the one side, there's a sense of pride. Uh, we can get going along through life, and things are going pretty good, and we can start to believe our own press clippings. Right? I, I, I'm doing pretty well. I've got a lot of skills and talents. Um, I can probably take it on my own. Thank you, Lord, but I think I've got it now. 
Have you ever gotten to that place in your life? You're pretty much out there doing it all on your own strength, all on your own determination, and all of a sudden life starts to fall apart, and you wonder, look around, and you go, why is everything falling apart around me? And then you look where you're standing, and you're standing here, and the middle of the road's over there. And you say, how did I get over here? Little by little, listen to the voice of the enemy, popped us up in pride, got us to rely on ourselves, and moved us very subtly and slowly off that road. And all of a sudden, I'm off the road. Well, the pride and the thing that I can go it alone and I can, you know, I can take care of this, Lord, gets offset then by the other side. And that's self-doubt. We run into a couple of things that don't go very well. People criticize us unfairly. We start thinking really lousy things about ourselves. Pretty soon we don't think God can use us for anything. We're kind of useless. This is so frustrating. Our self-image goes in you know, the toilet hole, and all of a sudden things start falling apart around us, and we stand up and we go, what am I doing over here? How did I get all the way over here when the middle of the road's over there? It's because we listen to the lies of the enemy, and he gets us off one side or the other as long as we're not finding our identity in Christ. So here's the question. What drives your self-image, and are you in balance? I think this is one of the critical questions as leaders, especially today. What drives your understanding of who you are? Are you allowing it to be Jesus Christ only, or are we listening to voices that are pulling us toward pride or pulling us toward self-doubt? What do you need in life? This is another way of putting this. Is your self-worth tied to your position? And I'm going to talk a little bit about the dangers of this. Um, it's one of the biggest slippery slopes we have as children of the kingdom of God. When we decide that our identity is not just going to be tied in Jesus Christ, but it's going to be tied to my, my title, my position, my job, oh, we're going down a very dangerous slope. But it's easy to do. And it's easier to do the higher you go up in leadership. Um, it took me a long time in the president's office, and I really don't ever think I did it really well, but to understand the, the power of title and position. You know, we were in Philadelphia, and when, when you're the, the president of the seminary that is serving a great number of African-American congregations, and you go to an African-American church on Sunday guess what? You're going to preach. I mean, you just are. And it took me a couple of very challenging and almost embarrassing moments to figure that out. You know, you're sitting 12 rows back in a church one Sunday just because you want to visit the, you know, a board member or a friend's church, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the church, this pastor comes and goes, is that Dr. Rodin back there? Well, I'll come up and give us a word. And all of a sudden, so I've learned to carry sermons in my pockets. Always asked to come up there. The, the power of position and title. Well, the challenge, of course, is that begins to become identified with who you are. It's not that I'm a child of God serving for a temporary period of time in a vocational calling that's called president of the seminary. I am the president of the seminary. See the difference? That's a subtle shift, but oh my gosh, you know it when you begin to own your position. And all kinds of awful things can start to happen. We'll get to that here in a minute. Are you able and willing to walk away at any time that God leads? Are you living loosely enough with your position as a steward and not an owner to say, God called me here for a season, I'm going to be here for a season, and when God comes and says, you know what, your season's up, you can go, okay, where do I go now? 
You can't do that if you own it. Somebody, I can't remember who it was, told a great story about the uh, orthopedic surgeons. Who told me that story? You told me that story? Great story about, about, about or, uh, thoracic surgeons who, who, you know, I mean, that's pretty heady stuff. If you're a thoracic surgeon, you're like top of the top right there. And when they changed the, the age limit for that you had to retire now at 65, people, people were struggling desperately with it. Because if I'm no longer a thoracic surgeon, what am I? I I've uh, worked with several college presidents in the transition into retirement. And one of the nagging questions when, you, when they finally get really open with you in a quietness of an intimate moment, I've had several of them say to me, Scott, I'm just not ready not to be the guy. I've been the guy for 15 years. I'm the president. People call me, want me to speak, want me to open things. You know, I am the guy. What's going to happen next week when I'm just John? It's a reality, isn't it? When we, are we ready and willing to say to God, I'll come when I come, work when I work, leave whenever you want me to leave. My identity is not in my job. I'm a steward of my job, not an owner. My identity is in you. And finally, are you an owner or a steward of your job? And that isn't just a leader, by the way. That's all the way throughout the organization. Um, we have got to live loosely with the vocation in which God calls us and be willing to move and go when he calls us to go. Okay with that? Agree with that? Okay. So, what about the disciplines? Well, how do we keep this in balance? It's a daily affirmation of our self-image within this balance. All that is? Yeah, let me come back to that for a second. Um, I, I'm a real believer in prayers. This is for my life. This is the only way I can do this. Are prayers I, I say before my feet hit the ground. Literally, prayers that I say while I'm still laying in bed. My dog is up. She's beaten the side of the bed. She has to go out. But there's some things that I need to get right before I get up. Because when my feet hit the floor, my brain gets going. And, and I, get, I just get distracted. And so I have to lay in bed, and I have to get a few things correct. And one of the things I try to keep correct is, Lord, today, keep my whole image focused on you. My whole image focused on you. Um, and whatever discipline you need to have in your devotional time and whatever, I would just challenge and encourage you to be a steward of your self-image and make sure that the, the feedback you're getting is coming from Christ, and that's what you're listening to. One of the greatest examples of this, and we'll just right end with this, um, is this little phrase. When, when we've got our self-image right, we are able to absorb criticism and deflect praise. You hear that? We are able as leaders to absorb criticism and deflect praise. And if you've ever had a leader who really can do that, it is a wonderful person to work for. Because when something goes wrong, they're the first one to say, okay, look, we, I mean, I'll own that. Let's figure out how to do this better. Um, and when something goes great, they say, no, no, that wasn't me. That was Bill and Jerry and, and Linda and, and Carrie. They're really the ones that made this thing happen. You see, they don't need applause to build up their own self-esteem because they know who they are in Christ. They can just give it away. They just give it away all the time. And they can take criticism because, listen to this, this is the key to this whole thing. If, 
if I don't own my job, if I'm just a steward of this vocation, if you criticize what I do in this vocation, you're not criticizing me as a human being. You're criticizing the way that I'm working in this role. And I should be able to take that and say, great, how can I be better? God wants me to be a good steward of this role. And if I'm not doing it as well as I should, and you can tell me, help me do it better. But the minute I own my job, then your criticism of what I did in my job is a criticism of who I am as a person. And then I become the kind of leader that absorbs praise and deflects criticism. And you've probably all worked for someone like that. And it's a really awful place to be, isn't it? So God, help us be stewards of our jobs. Help us to be stewards of our self-image. That we can work freely for you. That we can die to those things that would call us to be owners. And we really can absorb criticism with joy and, and with ease. And we can deflect praise into the people around us. I think that's a sign to me of freedom, of real freedom. So a couple, just a quick word on the trajectories, and then we'll go have lunch. Oops, come back here. Steward leaders develop whole people. And it's a simple transfer of this thing of saying that if this is how I understand my relationship to my job, I want everybody I work with to feel the same way. I want every employee in my organization to be absolutely free in relationship to their job. I want them to come when God calls them. I want them to work hard while they're here. I want them to be ready to go when God calls them to go away. I want them to be able to take criticism really well. I want them to be able to deflect praise. I want them to know that freedom and have their identity in Christ. So how do I lead that way that I can help my people to do that? How do we lead others to be balanced and healthy in their own self-perceptions? That's really the, the key. And then steward leaders harness the power of people. I just know people that are able to lead this way um, allow and encourage the greatest level of achievement and excellence from their people and build the most faithful organizations as a result. So the key to this fourth key <laughs> is unlocking the shackles of a misplaced identity. It is finding our sole identity in Christ and then having the freedom to live for others. It really frees us up to set our own agenda aside and to live fully for the people around us. Because my identity is in Christ. Is that enough for the morning? How do we do? Oh, gosh, it's 11.47. I have 13 minutes. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's dialogue for a few minutes. Thoughts, questions on this? Any, uh, any feedback, ideas, thoughts, questions, challenges? Yes. Um, yeah, my spouse unfortunately is caught up in the whole, this whole idea of temptation, temptation of um, distraction. So where he basically is putting his job over us, yeah. sort of the thing where he goes to work and he comes home and there's nothing left for yep. us. So he's yep. irritable and he's not willing to, he's, well, he helps, but it's like, ugh, yeah. you know what I mean? And I've been talking to him a lot about it as far as um, going to our pastor or something like that and to work it out because I don't know if that's what he needs. But I guess what I'm trying to ask is, I understand this, and this is what I'm working very much mm -hmm. towards, but it's really hard when you have a spouse who's supposed to be yeah. basically your, your soulmate, yeah. and I'm dealing with it every day, yeah. and it's this pushback every single day, and it's just, I don't know, like, do you, what would you say towards 
works out. I know I'm giving yeah. advice. Is he a believer? Hmm? Is he a believer? He is very much so. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He helps in the children's ministry. And I know. Is it? And, you know? And it's a story that's told over and over and over again that godly men, and women now more so than ever, but I should say for a minute, godly men who love Christ and want to follow him, who love their wife, who love their family, all of a sudden find themselves working 60 and 70 hours a week and don't have enough for their kids, for their wife, for their marriage, for, you know, and, and um, you know, the, the question, you know, that, that it's probably not you, but somebody else needs to come and ask me is, is why? What is it that's driving you to believe you have to work this many hours? There's something that is so important to him in his life that he is prioritizing, even if he says he isn't, by his actions, by the way he's, you know, this over this. Um, and I think a lot of what we talked about is probably wrap, wrapped up in all that. But helping, it's money, okay? And, and behind that, it's more than money then. It's, it's, uh, um, it's self-worth. It's oftentimes what drives us toward money. Um, because it, it says I'm a successful person and I want to be successful for my wife and for my kids and so I'm going to drive hard to make the money to, to show the world that I'm successful and all the rest. Um, but I think until you get to that core issue of what is, what is the absolute driver, um, you know, you, it, it's going to be stuff around the edges and it's a hard discussion. It's a really hard discussion. Um, so many of us get caught up in it, but that's why I went back to the drivenness. What is it that drives us? Um, so that's all I would say is Try to get him to identify with that. Yeah. Yes. Yes, um, confession time again. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to go home with a clean spirit. All, it's all good. Uh, it's just, um, <clears throat> you know, you, I venture out trying to uh, accomplish something and before God and that kind of thing. And, and the Holy Spirit always kind of just nudges me with that. John 15, it's like, Joe, apart from me, you can do nothing. And one of the uh, images, I'm a very visual guy, he, he gave me an analogy. I'm, I'm an electrician, and uh, it's a plug tester. And, uh, you know, on its own, it's inert, it's dead, right? That's how he's called us to be. But you plug it in, and it comes alive. And mm -hmm. it's like, apart from him, unless you're, all that is embedded. And yeah. So I really no, appreciate good. that, yeah. Hell, I, whatever, the, whatever image helps you see that, um, it's just, yeah, it's just really critical. Other thoughts, comments? Yes. I hate microphones. <laughs> um, just your comment, are you able to walk, or are you able and willing to walk away at any time as God leads? And that's definitely a situation I'm in. And... I'm the working parent in my family, and there's a fear that, okay, yes, I've had this, but it's scary if I walk away, how am I going to provide? Yeah. And I know right now I'm at the end of this season, yeah. and that just really hit home to me is, are you willing and able walk to walk away? just heard a story before we came on about a couple of people who just left their jobs and walked away and moved because God called them to move and don't know exactly where they're going. But you made the comment that you still need to provide. And, of course, the response could be, not really. I mean, you do, but God is the provider. And if he calls and moves, he will give the provision to help you to get what you get to. But it's a deeper step, right? It's your deeper step into deeper water than you've gone before. Yeah. Good, thank you. Other thoughts, comments? 
Um, then we can certainly break early. But let me just, just, let me just uh, end with uh, one, one more quick thought here that came to mind as people were talking. Um, this idea of how much time we spend at work, I think uh, we need to continue to challenge this significantly in our culture. And here's the way that I've been trying to frame it, both for my own life and for the leaders that I work with. If we believe that um, God calls us into certain vocations, into certain work with certain organizations at certain times, is that right? Most of you believe you're where you are doing what you're doing because you're responding to God. God called you to this whole thing, right? We also believe that God wants us to live a balanced life. That it is God's intent and will that we have time and space in our life for Sabbath, for devotion, for family, for recreation, for church, for fellowship with others, and for work. All those things that make a, a life rich. And there's balance in there. There's enough time to do all those things, plus keep ourselves healthy, get the sleep we need to get, right? God created 24 hours. That wasn't by accident. And we sleep for eight. We're awake for 16. Is kind of the rhythm we're supposed to have. In the 16 hours, he designed time for work and time for all these other things. In a sense, he wants this richness and this balance to be in our lives. So if he wants our lives to be balanced, and if he calls us into a job and a vocation for a certain time and a certain place, why do we think that the only way that we can be successful in carrying out that job is to live a life that is totally out of balance? Isn't that weird? Talk to people who are working 60 and 70 hours a week and they don't have time for devotions and they're burning themselves out, they don't have time with their family or whatever the case is, and they always justify it, but well, God called me to this position and this is what we need to do. We're working for the kingdom of God here. As if God is glorified and pleased by a lifestyle that is completely out of balance just because we're supposedly serving God. Isn't that something wrong with that, isn't there? Would we all agree? We say, yes, there's something wrong with that. Thank you. There's something wrong with that, folks. And we've got to come into the face of that and say, how did we get there? How did we get to the place where we're willing to accept a completely out-of-balance life because we're working for Jesus? When Jesus is the author of the life that we're supposed to live in balance. And I think we've got to go back and ask the fundamental questions. What is driving us? What is driving us? And then begin to unpack that. It's a strange person today. It's a strange person today that if you walk up to him and say, gosh, you know, I'd really like to get together sometime. Can we get together in the next two days? They would say, oh, sure, I got time. Right? Yeah, sure. I have a couple hours tomorrow afternoon. We can do it next morning. I got some places in my schedule. We can get together. Do you run into people like that very often? No, it's what? Two weeks from Tuesday, I can sneak you in between, you know, my kid's soccer game and my, we, we just cram our schedules full. And then we wonder why, we're not able to live the kind of balanced life. So my question would be, start with a life God would have you live. What would that look like in terms of a balance of our time? And then look at your job and ask, and this is my sort of bottom line for me. I believe that in the time that we are to commit to work, we can do everything that God expects of us. And oh, I, presidents just hate it when I say that. They really do. That if you work 40 hours a week, if that's the, what you think is a work, if you work 40 hours a week, you can accomplish in 40 hours a week everything that God asks you to do in this job. Because if that's not true, then God's a liar. He puts you in a job and he asks you to work more hours than you should and get your life out of balance, and that's not who God is. 
Now, there's, sure, there's times when you've got to work extra. I understand that. But, but in general, in general, he wants you to have a healthy, balanced life. And he calls you into a job, and those two things have got to go together. And if you're in a job God called you to, and your life is all out of balance, it's not because you're working for him. And I think that's the challenge that we need to take on ourselves. So, with that, chew on. Let's go chew. Sometimes I'm up and soaring as Scott speaks, and sometimes I'm heavy, like, oh, what I have not learned through the years. So rich, thank you. It is lunchtime, uh, time to enjoy some great food, and uh, we have uh, some wonderful people back there who are amazing servants. I wonder if, Brian, maybe you just uh, have them step out of those kitchen doors. And uh, their names are Bob and Val Teske, Juanita Jevons, Diane Kosowin, and Sid and Faith Page. I at least know some of them that have been back there working. And I just think we ought to say, oh. They were actually sitting back there and the light coming through, I couldn't see you guys. So uh, thank you so much uh, for all that you're doing. Enjoy brunch. There's no charge, unless, of course, it would be a blessing to you to give, and then you're welcome to, uh, but just enjoy. <laughs> the line again forms through the double doors, and uh, the round tables are set up for you. If you want to bring your uh, lunch back in here, that's fine, too. So uh, uh, Randy Baker is going to come and lead us in prayer. Randy and uh, Lynn have a prayer group that meets here uh, every Wednesday night. And last Wednesday night, it was such a joy to see about 20 of their prayer group just walking among these tables and praying uh, for this uh, weekend that God would, in a very powerful way, uh, show up and, and move among us, and uh, he did. Thank you. Let's stand together. So I'll pray, and then we'll, you know, till 12.15? No, <laughs> Father, I thank you for what you have shared last night and this morning through Scott. You've given us much to chew on there. And Lord, as we sang that song before this session, come in, King of Glory. Father, we thank you for this food, but I thank you for the hands. I ask your blessing on those that prepared it. Father, I especially invite you to come into our conversations around the table. We invite you to come in and to, to touch our hearts, to open up the things that that you've put your finger on, that we would share with others, Lord, that we would minister your life to one another as we partake of the food you've so graciously given. And I thank you. Amen.